If you would, uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to read beginning in verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of of the earth. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name, because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you again for our time together tonight, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would make your word known to us, that you would help us to believe it by faith, that you would help us to submit to what your word commands of us. Pray that you would help me in speaking your word to your people. God, I pray that you would glorify yourself through me, that you would exalt Christ through me, and that you would edify your people through me. And I pray for your glory. I pray that we would see you more clearly. And that in that, Father, by your Holy Spirit, you would motivate us to live worthy of the calling that we have received as your people, to be holy. Oh God, you are worthy, and you know our needs. And so I pray, Father, that you would be faithful because you are, and help us as we open your word. Amen. So this week we're going back into Isaiah 40 to continue our study on the attributes of God uh, as laid out in the London Baptist Confession. Uh, in setting up the context for the trial of the false gods, which is, you know, I mentioned that's what these series of passages are. Uh, in setting up the context for the trial of the false gods, I briefly mentioned uh, last week that the main thrust of the following passages, beginning in verse 12 and proceeding from there, was that God is making the case for himself as a capable Savior. And I want to expand just a little more on that uh, so that we can 
get even more context around what we're talking about, okay? Um, if we look at the preceding verses, we see in verse 1, uh, verse 1 says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Right? Uh, God wants to comfort his people. And in verse 2, Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received double, uh, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Right? Uh, we see that Jerusalem's warfare will have ended and that her sins will have been paid for. Right? In verse 5, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it. Verse 8, the grass wither, withers, the flower fades, but the word, of your, the word of our God stands forever. Right? It shows that God's promises are sure because his word stands forever. Verses 10 and 11, right? Uh, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the nursing ewes. Right? Verses 10 and 11 say that God will do all of this by his own strength and power. And if you can't tell yet, right, these are all allusions to the coming salvation that is in Christ. Okay, so keep that in the back of your minds as we continue on. Uh, we as humans often tend to think that we are in control of our circumstances. We often see the messes we get ourselves into and think it is in our power to get out. Uh, and if we do get out, we take the glory for ourselves. Man, that was a difficult time. But I made it through. Uh, Many who have something of a pious nature will recognize that they ought to give God glory for such things, and uh, so will offer a, a nod toward heaven, you know, a hat tip to the man upstairs. But we frequently fail to see that everything that is happening and has happened uh, to shape our circumstances. God is always at work, moving and acting to accomplish his good pleasure. Israel is seen this way throughout Scripture, right? The entire book of Judges is one giant timeline of man goes his own way, right? And then man can't figure out how to save himself. And then man calls to God, and God is merciful and saves his people. God delights to save his people. God loves to be the Savior. And it's the, natural, it's the natural human condition to exalt self. It is the natural human condition to give glory to the things that don't actually deserve glory. What we don't often see because we don't acknowledge God's sovereign hand working in all things is just how merciful patient, and kind he is toward us. Look at verse 11 again. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. 
In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Is this how we would act? Right? Is this how we would treat uh, those who break our laws? To scoop up the wandering lamb and carry it in our bosom to take care of it? This is God's nature, right? The mind that has forgotten God needs only one thing in order to be corrected. It needs to see God for who he truly is. The more we see of God, the less we're inclined to exalt anything else. And God is even able to correct the mind of the unbeliever in this way. Okay? Think of the way that the Lord humbled Pharaoh. All the Egyptian gods were challenged and proved lacking. And even Pharaoh, in the end, saw God. Though in his case, it was too late for repentance. And God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. This hopefully is a familiar passage. I was actually going the wrong direction in my Bible there. Daniel chapter 4. Let's read real quick what Nebuchadnezzar had to say when God revealed himself to him. Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 33, it says, Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? When man gets a right picture, of God, one of two things happens. Either he is hardened in his hatred against the Lord, or he's humbled. Okay, so to refresh you on what we've already begun to study, I want to remind you that we're looking, that what we're looking at is the attributes of God as laid out in various passages throughout Scripture. Right? And where we've started in Isaiah 40 is a place where God is using his attributes as an argument against the idea that there are any other gods worthy of being worshipped. As we make our way through this passage, I want you to recognize that what the Lord is doing is he is giving his people a clearer picture of himself to remind them who they are in light of who he is and to give them hope in the coming salvation because God is ultimately good and faithful. The context 
of the passage is the gospel. The gospel is God's gospel. Right? Just because we're not talking about Jesus shedding his blood on the tree doesn't mean that we're not talking about the gospel. The gospel, God's actions that he takes to save a people for himself flow out from who he is. And so I noted last week that through a series of rhetorical questions, the Lord is shown to be self-existent, self-sufficient, immense, the source of being, perfectly just, almighty, and has all glory in himself. And this week, we're going to continue in the passage in Isaiah 40, starting in verse 18. So let's read together. It says, To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Chapter 2, section 1 of the London Baptist Confession says, this is a quote, The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. And this is going to be kind of a theme for the message tonight. God is one. And God stands alone in regards to who he is and what he is capable of. And in how inscrutable his character is. We see in verse 18, in yet another rhetorical question, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? That the implied answer is that there is none. As we covered last week, during the creation, God was alone. There was a time when the triune God of Scripture had not yet created anything, and so he was alone. He had no need of anyone or anything, and the fellowship within the Godhead was perfect. Okay, It lacked nothing. It needed nothing. <clears throat> Out of abundance... Within himself, God spoke and creation came into being. And the confession puts it this way. God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. And because of this, what God made had to logically be a product of what was already within him. It was his prerogative to demonstrate his own glory through creation. And everything that he created, Genesis tells us, that he looked at and he saw that it was good. And so we ought to believe what the word says and agree that everything that God made is good. If God was alone at the beginning of creation, and there is no one, no God, no thing to which we, according to Scripture, can compare him, then our conclusion must be that he is the only true God, and that he is living because in himself he is the source of all life. Now, let's try to make a comparison between God and ourselves. And it sounds ridiculous, right? At least it should sound ridiculous. So let's go for it. 
were we there at the beginning? Eh. Nope. Have we ever been in the truest sense of the word alone? Wrong again. No, we have not. Have we created anything? Not in the same way that God has. Not out of nothing. Are we the source of life? Or even a source of life? I would agree in a small sense if someone pointed out that in circumstances like uh, a child's relationship to its mother in the womb, that humans can be something of a source of life. But who sustains the mother? Who ensures that she lives to provide life? Okay, we are all dependent beings in some sense or another. God is not. Acts chapter 17 verse 28 tells us that in him, that is in Christ, we live and move and exist. We are dependent upon Christ to live and move and exist. And this relationship really gets thrown on its head when we ask ourselves, can we create God? If the Lord is our creator, then obviously we cannot create the one who created us. But let's just, for giggles, ask ourselves what our backwards attempt would even look like. And so, come from stage left, sauntering across the stage, verse 19. As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. 20. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. We can see in these verses that any gods we would seek to fashion are in no way like the God of the Bible. They are not living. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. Look at his materials compared to the idol craftsman. God uses dirt. Man uses wood and silver and gold and things that we would consider to be precious materials, right? They're valuable to us. And, and, and look at the value that we place in dirt, right? Would you rather have a dump truck load of gold or a dump truck load of dirt. And yet, and yet, God saw fit to make his most glorious creation out of dirt. And let me just point out too that this, right? Not, maybe not maybe not my body. My body is not very impressive. But this as as a human body, right? is something that science and inventors and men who want to, like, create technology and all this stuff, they're, they're, the epitome of their goal is to create something like the human body. 
They can't figure it out. They're not going to figure it out. God did it with a pile of dirt, right? Man is such an advanced creation that the human body is the ultimate goal of man's creation. So Genesis continues, God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now hold on. Do any of you, do do any of us possess this ability to breathe the breath of life into something such that it becomes a living being? I'd love to have been in the room if an idol maker fashioned, right? Uh, If he finished sculpting and shaping his craft and then looked at it and decided, oh, maybe I'll just blow on you, right? That idol maker's insane. He's insane. What a ridiculous image. But God takes dirt and shapes it into a man and literally breathes into his nostrils and the dirt comes alive. Man imagines that he can take a piece of wood and some precious metals and create a God that is then worthy to be worshipped. He even has to secure it so that it won't fall over. Right, let's look at an example of this. 1 Samuel chapter 5. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 1. 1 Samuel 5, 1. It says, Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to Ebenezer in Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by. Dagon. And this is the moment where the minion goes, dun, 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 right? If you've read this story, you know exactly what's about to happen. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So, what did they do? They took Dagon their God, and set him in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both of the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold, and only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Let's ask ourselves, what can God do to the idols of man. He breaks them. Nothing that man creates is living. Nothing that man creates has being by virtue of our having fashioned it. Why ultimately are the idols offensive to God? It's because he is the only true God. So at their foundation... Idols are those things other than God which we devote ourselves to. The root of idolatry is self-worship. 
What provides us with fulfillment or comfort or ease from our fears? That which we desire takes the primary place in our minds and we serve that desire, right? A lot of Christians want to talk about the idols that we have, right? And they just start listing things off like one, two, three, four, whatever, you know. I've, I've heard people say PlayStation can be an idol. I've heard some people say uh, work can be an idol, you know, and, and, and here's, here's what I'll grant. I'll grant that our idols in, in the modern day, at least in the West, are different from the idols that some of the Israelites were fashioning for themselves, right? We don't go and, and, and grab a piece of wood and shape it into some kind of creature and then bow down and worship it, right? But what does that idolatry and our idolatry have in common? It is self-worship at the root, okay? Because what an idolater is seeking to do with the idol is fulfill his own desires, right? The reason the pagans pick out a piece of wood and craft it into a creature, a small god, and feed it and clothe it and clean it and do all these things for it is because they think to themselves, oh, I want crops this year, or oh, I want rain to come, or oh, I don't want all of these uh, violent acts of quote-unquote mother nature to happen, right? And so they appease their own fears. They worship themselves by appeasing their own fears and creating a God that they can come to and say, if I only do this for this thing, then these other things that I'm afraid of won't happen. And so then we compare it to something like the idols that we have today, right? An idol like work. And what is work for us when it's an idol? It's a way to protect ourselves against poverty. It's a way to buy all the things that we want. It's a way to have the expensive car. It's a way to have the, the nice house. It's a way to get the girls. It's a way to do all this kind of stuff. And ultimately, that is also self-worship. Because you're taking the things that you desire most and you're placing them on the pedestal above everything else and you're ignoring everything else for the sake of having that, your comfort and your ease and your joy. And so anything that becomes that for us as Christians is our idols. When we let our own desires overtake the place of God, We've created an idol. Moving on, verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? The questions in verse 22, uh, 21, excuse me, I believe are intended to provoke a sense of guilt in the hearer. Do you know? The implication, you should know. Have you not heard? Implication, I have made sure that you've heard. Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Implication, God has poured forth knowledge and declared the truth of God. Excuse me, excuse me. Implication, creation has poured forth knowledge and declared the truth of God. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Implication, I have made my truth clear from the very beginning. So, 
Romans chapter 1, we've read it often, right? Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Man cannot plead ignorance when it comes to the truth about who God is. And we, we of all people cannot plead ignorance. We are not among the pagan, unreached peoples of the world. Our nation has more of the grace of God, the knowledge of God, and the mercy of God poured out on it than most others in history. We are a people who know God. And of course, to know Him salvifically is a work of His grace alone through the gift of faith, but we are a people who know God. We're not like the Philistines we just read about, who wouldn't have known that the ark is holy. We sit in church Sunday after Sunday and listen to sermon after sermon. So we cannot claim, we do not know, we have not heard, and it hasn't been declared to us who God is. Verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Again, here we see the immensity of God. By saying that the Lord sits above the circle of the earth, it shows that God's view of the earth is such that his sight encompasses its entirety. The confession says, in his sight, everything is open and visible. So when we see satellite photos looking back at the earth, what do we see? We see a circle, right? God sees all of the earth. There is nothing hidden from his sight. There is nothing that can hide in darkness where his light cannot penetrate. And the writer here also compares Earth's inhabitants to grasshoppers, right? What effort would it take for us to stomp a grasshopper? You remember last week I used the example of an ant. All I got to do is shift my weight. Well, the same thing with a grasshopper, right? God looks down and sees grasshoppers. That's what he sees. In the same way that we barely notice things like grasshoppers because they're so small, God looks at us as if we were insects. There is no reason for God to fear us. There is no reason for God to panic because we rage against him. (laughs) Can you imagine a grasshopper rebellion? Right? Like, what what does that look like? All the the grasshoppers just start hop, 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 raid, you know? I mean, this this is the picture, right? We are no cause for concern to God. It says he stretches out the heavens like a tent. And this reminds us of the Exodus. When, when Israel was forced to wander in the wilderness, they dwelt in tents that they had uh, to move from place to place and pitch and tear down. Their habitation was not permanent. Even the tent that God designed for Israel to build as the tabernacle that would serve as his dwelling place in their midst was not a permanent structure. 
And so the imagery here is twofold. God is so big, right? God is so big that his tent is the heavens. Okay? And God's dwelling place does not move. God is unchangeable. So here's the, here's the example, right? All the grasshoppers where you live, and all the grasshoppers where you live, move about all over your land. And your land doesn't move, right? They move on your land. Your land doesn't go anywhere. Your land is unmovable. <clears throat> the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. We, in a physical sense, are temporary. God is eternal. We, in a physical sense, take up a finite amount of space. And God is infinite. Verse 23, he it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. The confession says God does not need any creature he has made, nor does he derive any glory from them. Instead, he demonstrates his own glory in them, by them, to them, and upon them. God's people in this passage have trembled at the nations. And in many ways, the Christians in our nation tremble at our enemies. Fear consumes many. Fear, fear for our children. Uh, fear for our families. Fear for our freedoms. It is God who reduces rulers to nothing. It is God who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. So think about the way that the law, right? Think about the way that the law is supposed to protect us. In our society, we have laws against uh, murder and theft. But the law can't actually protect us. Right? Law in the hands of a corrupt men cannot actually do anything. Right? Law in the hands of unbelieving men can change from day to day depending upon the whims of our culture. Okay? The law can't actually, like, if someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night, he's going to steal something, or he's going to hold a gun to somebody's head and, like, kill and, and commit murder, right? The law, I guess, and maybe unless you have, like, the code of, of law as a book sitting on your face, you know, like maybe that'll protect you. I don't know. But like the law, the code is not, is not actually protecting you. It's not actually going to do anything to someone who's determined to break the law. Right? It's not, it's not a protection for you. But law from the lawgiver, from God, is founded upon his unchanging nature. And so the only constant in all history has been the Lord. Men change. God does not. Rulers conquer and bring with them change based on their own beliefs and preferences. No empire of man can ever last because God, excuse me, no empire of man can ever last. But because of God's unchanging nature, the mightiest men that have ever ruled on the face of the earth, all have come to nothing. All empires 
will eventually become dust like the men themselves. It's a bit of ironic poetry that a man, that man who is made from dust will become dust again. Because when God blows, it's either life or death. Right? He either gives breath or he takes it away. And it is the Lord who raises the nations of men and heaps up their ruins. Verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. And see who has uh, see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Because there is none that can be likened to God, God stands alone. Because he stands alone, we must acknowledge that he is one. The Lord has no equal. It is God alone who fashioned the stars, while man must take wood from the trees that God grew and the gold that God buried and uses the eyes that God gave him to build idols with the hands that God himself crafted to worship a God that he created in his own mind with the breath that God gives. The mere fact that man can exist standing next to the idol that he fashioned proves beyond any doubt possible that God is the most patient, the most merciful, the most loving, and most gracious being that exists. Verse 26 commands God's people to lift up their eyes and see who created the stars, to see the one who leads their hosts by number and knows all their names. And in Scripture, oftentimes, celestial bodies represent nations and peoples, right? These stars represent that God's knowledge is infinite. When we look to the heavens, what do we see? Right, so now the roles are reversed, right? God looks down, he sees grasshoppers. What do we see when we look up? What do we see when we look to the heavens? When we look to the heavens, we see a universe that is known completely by God. We see a creation where every, every gas giant, right, every star and every speck of dust is known and accounted for. We serve the God who knows every hair of our head and the name of the farthest star in the farthest galaxy. And what we also see in verse 26 is the Lord of hosts who not only commands and sovereignly decrees every move of every army in history, but the one who commands the very stars. It's as if God is saying, you think your army is big? 
Look at mine. And all of this, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. To whom will you liken God? There is none like him. So now I want to bring it full circle. Earlier I mentioned that when man gets a right picture of God, he is either hardened in his hatred of him or he's humbled. For those upon whom the Lord has set his affection, the result is always that we are humbled. And this reminds, of us, reminds us of just how great is the mercy and grace of God to save an often idolatrous and often disobedient people through the sacrifice of one who was never idolatrous, who was never disobedient. It's difficult for our minds to consider things like the immensity of God or that God is infinite and eternal. What's even more difficult, what's even more difficult than to understand that is to understand how a God with such power and majesty and awe could stoop, could stoop to take up the helpless, wandering lamb. In his arms, all, because this perfect and glorious God simply loves us. That is his glory, to save an unworthy people by the power of his might and the strength of his arm to his glory alone. So what? So what? What does all this mean? I was uh, listening to a uh, podcast by Steve Lawson, and uh, Jeff Durbin's pretty fond of this phrase, so what, right? And they both tend to say and think at the end of every sermon should be a so what, and I'm guilty of not giving a so what at the end of all my sermons. But, you know, we've looked at all this stuff here tonight, and so what? So what does all this mean? So what? I'm going to propose three things that this picture of God should do for us, should do to us, right? Number one is it should give us a greater fear of the Lord. Paul Washer puts it this way. He says, you look at God who uh, commands the mountains to be lifted up and, and, and the valleys to be cast down, and then he tells the sea, you're going to come this far, and you're not going to come any further. And he tells the stars where to go and how to move. And they all bow down and obey and worship. Yes, God. But then God looks at us and says, here's, here's what I want from you. And we say, no. But then when we look at passages like this, we're reminded of our grasshopper self, right? Our inner grasshopper. We're reminded that when God looks at us, it's like looking at an insect. When God looks at us to compare his power to our power, 
is like comparing an ant to a wall of granite. The wall of granite doesn't move. The ant doesn't have power to move the wall of granite. We're the ant. And so when we consider this God who says he expects us to be this way, who expects us to be obedient to his word, we have to remember who he is. We have to remember that he's the one who's in control of all things. He's the one who commands the armies. He's the one who commands the plagues. He's the one who commands all things. The scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we don't look up to our Heavenly Father and think, oh, I'm so terrified. Oh, I'm, I'm so afraid that I'm just not going to move. That, that's, not, that's not what the fear of the Lord does for us. Right? The fear of the Lord is to look at God and see with the wisp of his breath we can crumble to dust. Second thing that all of this should do to us, should remind us of, we should have a greater thankfulness to the Lord. Right? So we've, we've, we've looked at God describing who he is and how he is. And then we've also looked at man's tendency to create idols for himself, right? And even talked about some of the idols that we can have. And we're reminded that God is the one who stoops down to pick up the wandering sheep, right? He, he's the one who, who takes up the lamb in his arms and carries him back and cares for him. Because he does love us. And so what we ought to recognize is that even in the worst moments of our life, when we've gotten through, it's the Lord who has taken us through the entire thing, the entire process. Right? The fact that, the fact that we're in a place today that is better than the place we were in yesterday means that we ought to be thankful for the God that got us from yesterday to today. So seeing God for who he is should make us more thankful. And then finally, seeing God for who he is, recognizing that he is the only one like himself, right? That he is the only true God, the only living God, should give us a greater reverence for the Lord. And this is something Sometimes I think that in western culture in like American culture this is one of our greatest failures, right? Like being reverent towards the Lord because you know, we laugh at things that God hates. <laughs> You know, we'll, we'll come into a worship service and we're just flipping about it sometimes. We don't remember who God is and we don't think 
of who God is. And we don't think of the one that we're here to serve, the one that we're here to glorify, the one that we're here to magnify. Right? We become self-focused. And so seeing God for who he really is, seeing God for all of his attributes and all of his glory should remind us that like in any time, in any time that we're praying or worshiping or working or doing whatever it is that we're doing, right? Like, God's not just the song in the background. He's inside of all of it. We're always in his presence. Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you again for this night, Lord. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, that you have condescended to reveal yourself to us in power and might. We thank you, Father, that you have condescended to reveal yourself to us in a way that's clear enough, Lord, to make us to fear you and to sit in reverence and awe of you. Oh God, your glory is more than we can comprehend. Your majesty, your infinity is more than we can understand. God, you're too much for our minds to comprehend. You are incomprehensible to us, Father. And yet, Lord, you, you help us. You help us to see you. You remind us of who you are. And it spurs us on to greater obedience and greater faithfulness. And so, God, I pray that that's what this does. I pray that if there's anything I've said tonight, Father, that is out of line, that is not true, be burned up and forgotten. And I pray, Lord, for the truth that I've spoken tonight by your Holy Spirit would resonate in your people, would move them, God, to greater obedience, to greater reverence, to greater thankfulness, Father. I pray, Lord, that you do good to your people. Amen.